Let's pray together. We praise you, bless you, and worship you, our Good Shepherd. You have invited us to your table of everlasting goodness and love. Thank you for entrusting us as witnesses of the good news of your loving, saving goodness. You are worthy of our praise. Prepare our hearts to learn of you. Amen. Tov is the first Hebrew word I learned to say with confidence. Our Hebrew teacher would come into the classroom and greet us with, Boker Tov, and we would respond, Boker Tov, good morning, good morning. Tov means good. That being the case, I could appropriately greet you with Erev Tov, and you could respond, Erev Tov, good evening. And if you've ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof, you've heard Mazel Tov, which means something along the lines of good luck or congratulations or cheers. But even better would be to learn and say Elohim Tov, God is good. In Hebrew, the present tense is assumed, which is why Elohim Tov, God good, is translated as God is good. Elohim Tov, say it with me, Elohim Tov. It is with the declaration of Tov, good, that God blesses his creation, adding Tov Meod, very good, to that blessing after the creation of human beings created in his image, crowning and completing his creation. Now, according to folks who are actual Hebrew scholars, the meaning of tov is so much deeper than our English translation, good. It is an explosive word in Hebrew, connoting life bursting forth. It is the goodness of light bursting into life, water gushing through cracks in the earth, seeds with future life in them, bearing more life. The word tov is used more than 700 times in scripture. Scripture is abundant with tov. For example, at the end of Genesis, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for tov, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many people. Goodness is God's very nature. When Moses asks to see the glory of God, God replies, I will make my kol tovi, all my goodness, pass before you. And what is God's goodness? God's name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's tov, 
to be. All of God's goodness encompasses justice in love. It is the Good Shepherd Psalm for today, 23, that David declares, Surely your tov, surely your goodness will follow me, and your unfailing love all the days of my life. And you know, it actually is God himself who connects tov, goodness, with the kind of protection and care and flourishing that he expects of leaders, specifically those who become shepherds of others. And it is with this goodness that Nehemiah, in our Old Testament passage, reminds the people of Israel that under God's direction, Moses shepherded them through the wilderness. In Psalm 77, Asaph praises God for that good shepherding of human leaders. You led your people like a flock, O Lord, by the hand of Moses and Aaron. However, the Old Testament prophets present a picture that is constantly contrasting the leadership of good shepherds and bad shepherds. And many of those people arose in Israel, and their motives were for their own advancement and flourishing, and not for God's tov for his people. For hundreds of years in the writings of the psalmists and the prophets, God was presented as the singular good shepherd who would one day enter history stepping into the breach created by those malignant leaders and making up for the failures of those bad shepherds. Although our main association is of Jesus as the good shepherd, the Jewish people understood that the good shepherd was God himself. So when Jesus claimed to be the Good Shepherd, he was claiming divinity. Today, on Good Shepherd Sunday, we pause to consider the goodness of God toward creation in his beautiful imagery of God himself as the Good Shepherd. This imagery is important enough that each of the four Gospel writers relayed a story of Good Shepherding. And in each, the emphasis is very different, but all bring to life Elohim Tov. God is good. God is the good shepherd. Luke's emphasis is on Jesus receiving of sinners at the table of hospitality with celebration. In Luke, The parable of the lost sheep is told in conjunction with the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the woman with the lost coin. These three parables constitute one single parable in a larger whole. And in the instance of the lost sheep and the lost son, the shepherd, father, goes out or runs out and seeks the sinner whose being found itself represents repentance, according to Jesus. Kenneth Bailey stresses that the sheep responds to the shepherd's voice or cry and is overjoyed to be found. There's rejoicing in the community over the finding of the coin of great value and in heaven, too, upon the return and repentance of the one who's been lost. 
It is understood that the sheep and the prodigal accept to be found, but the celebration and rejoicing is in the love and goodness of the shepherd or the father. Now in the Gospel of Mark, in typical Mark fashion, there's a lot of compressed action. Interestingly, Mark brings to mind the concerns of the Old Testament prophets and structures his telling of the Good Shepherd along the lines of Psalm 23. Mark positions Jesus as the Good Shepherd in the context of the sending out of the Twelve on mission. He then highlights the bad shepherding of Herod and his banquet of death, John the Baptist's death, that is. Then Mark tells of the return of the Twelve from mission. Immediately, to hijack one of Mark's favorite words, he then situates Jesus as the Good Shepherd, spreading a table in the wilderness and feeding his flock at a banquet of life. Verse 34 of Mark 6. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. After teaching them, Jesus feeds 5,000 people in the wilderness, commanding them to sit down in groups on the pasture of green grass. They were filled, I shall not want. And the disciples took up 12 baskets of full of leftovers. My cup overflows. Mark ends his telling of Jesus as the Good Shepherd leading his disciples, creating still waters for them when the storm on the Sea of Galilee threatens their lives. Matthew reawakens the understanding of good leaders in the Good Shepherd tradition. Jesus addresses the disciples with the parable stressing the call on the disciples to search for the one who has strayed and to be good shepherds themselves. Matthew begins with a reference to one of these little ones, and this is understood by the listeners as an allusion to the unrecognized common people or poor in spirit. In this parable, the Father in heaven is concerned about the little one who's gone astray. But, like a real lost sheep, this little one wants to be and is found, accepting the love and rejoicing of the Father. The Good Shepherd takes a risk in searching out the lost sheep, and even the angels in heaven rejoice when the lost one is found. For Matthew, the focus is on the self-giving shepherd for the sake of the one, and the 99 in knowing security that he'll come after me if I'm lost. Now in the Gospel of John, naturally, there is a significant working in of deep theological meaning. When Jesus retells the parable of the Good Shepherd with himself as its central actor in John, he affirms that he is the living incarnation of the centuries-old promise of the prophets and the Psalms. Remember, Jesus' claim to be the Good Shepherd was a claim of divinity. But in John, there is an added dimension, and this is key. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The price the Good Shepherd pays 
is with his very life. In John's recapitulation of Jesus as the Tov Shepherd, Jesus is fully revealed as the incarnation and the atonement. A quick aside, I have relied a great deal on the book The Good Shepherd by Kenneth Bailey in preparation of this sermon. It is a hospitably accessible academic text. I highly recommend it for the sheer joy of going deep into all the biblical Good Shepherd texts. As the subtitle says, the book covers the 1,000-year journey from Psalm 23 to the New Testament. As John opens the parable of the Good Shepherd, the sheep are threatened by thieves and wild animals. In the first six verses, the sheep and shepherds are in the village, where the thief might hop the fence, so to speak, and rob the one to whom the sheep belong. By contrast, the shepherd calls out to the assigned gatekeeper who opens the door. The sheep hear and know the voice of the shepherd. He calls, the sheep follow. The good shepherd does not drive the sheep from behind, but leads, going out in front. At the conclusion of Jesus' story of the shepherd, the listeners don't get it. And so Jesus starts over again at verse 7, relating the parable again, this time with the sheep and the shepherd in the wilderness. Note that the sheep are not kept in a cage. They go in and out in the open country. There's freedom and sustenance available to them. During the night or under threat, the shepherd's body is the door, the chosen place of safety. And when the thieves and the wolf threaten, whose whole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, the hired hands run off. But the good shepherd provides the safety with his body as the door. The good shepherd promises abundant life and lays down his life for his sheep. Verses 14 and 15 kind of form a sandwich, and there's two pieces of bread. On the one hand, I am the good shepherd, and on the other hand, I lay down my life. Inside that sandwich is love, the knowing love of the good shepherd for his sheep and the knowing love of the father for the son. The knowing love is inside. That's John 3.16. Here is the cross. But John makes it abundantly clear that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep of his own accord and has the power to take it up again. Here is the resurrection. All of this is in the context of the Father's love. Quoting from Bailey, the love of the Father for the Son is not something earned by Jesus through his willingness to endure the cross. Rather, Jesus' death is an expression of the love they share together. The love of the Father is to be regarded in Christ's passion not only towards us, but also towards Christ. Here in John, the cross and the resurrection flow with great power from the love of God. This is good news for sheep. Jesus, the one true man of Tov, 
brings the tov news of the kingdom. Good shepherd equals good news. Each of the four gospel writers were on a mission as witnesses to share the good news. And on this Good Shepherd Sunday of Eastertide, we are meant to be aware of our call, like the 12 disciples, to be witnesses of the good news of the kingdom of God, where the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and has power and authority to take it up again, thus assuring us of abundant life. As I've related the gospel accounts of the Good Shepherd parable, most of us are sitting at the table of everlasting life and love. We are being fed. We have already received and are receiving and seeking to live into the good news of the kingdom. We have learned to cry out to the Good Shepherd with our needs. We have been sought and found. We have learned and are learning to know the voice of our shepherd, to receive forgiveness and healing at the cross of Christ because of the death and resurrection of the Good Shepherd. As Peter says, we were going astray like sheep. We have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. How then do we live tov, good lives, and become witnesses, agents of did you hear me going back and forth between what we possess already and what we need? Perhaps we're inhibited from sharing the good news of our Good Shepherd because we're aware of our own struggles. If we experience fear, failures, confusion, and anxiety, are we even qualified to share the good news? I give a resounding yes for two reasons. One, we are always being sanctified. Although our goal is maturity, although we desire that others would see our good works and give glory to God, we know we fail. It is daily work to discern the voice of our Good Shepherd above the other voices clamoring for our attention. Jesus is always seeking us. Our work is to submit to being found. And number two, while we are witnesses of our faith, others coming to faith is God's work. We cooperate with him to the best of our ability to show others the goodness of God. And we are strengthened in that calling in the community of the church. We need one another. We love and are loved, sandwiched in the love of God within the community of God. Have you read Chinua Achabe's book, Things Fall Apart, and the continuing line from W.B. Yeats' poem, The Center Cannot Hold? It is said that every generation feels an apocalyptic shudder. In ours, among other things, there is a significant crisis of authority. There is no shared vision of an abundant life. There's a complete loss of knowing of the meaning of truth, goodness, and beauty. May I say with confidence that the center does hold, and that center is the Good Shepherd? I know this in the depths of my being. Knowing this, how do we witness to others 
individually and as a church. I gleaned a few thoughts from an interview Bishop Todd Hunter had with a professor of evangelism and leadership at Wheaton College, Rick Richardson. As we seek to share our faith with others individually in our relational circles, we encounter some pretty off-putting stereotypes of Christians and Christian faith. But oftentimes, these stereotypes are not based on people's personal experience, but rather are based on the cultural milieu in which we all live. Ask about them. What have a person's experiences been? How did they come to hold their ideas? Let's allow others to name those experiences. Hopefully, we won't reinforce the negativeness in the way that we respond and behave. But actually, we may find that we share some of their feelings. Let's not be defensive. Let's listen. Right now, like it or not, the church is thrown back on its heels by the many well-known scandals. Even so, very recent studies show that although people are leery of the institutional church, they are interested in faith. They are interested in spirituality. They are open individually. Sometimes the question is simply, when were you hurt by the church? And we begin there. Richardson stresses that there are new conversational rules in our culture. Many of us, and I include myself here, have been trained to talk. Our mind goes immediately to four spiritual laws or some other method of sharing faith. We go to, what's my answer? And it's not that people don't want to hear or won't listen to what we have to say, but it is that first we must be willing to listen. And that listening is to the raw, real messiness of life. Rational responses are not what keeps the conversation open. As we listen first, the invitation is to be real about our own struggles and pain. I mentioned that tov is an explosive word connoting life bursting forth. God calls good anything that produces life and contains the potential for more life within it. Think of a conversation or story in which God stirred you and brought forth life from you and within you and offer that to others in a means of calling forth potential in their lives. The Apostle Peter implores us to conduct ourselves honorably before all. In the loving relationship we have with our Good Shepherd, in the relationships we have with others, including within our own homes, all the way to the political structures in which we find ourselves, and of course, with one another in the church. Our witness begins in the household of God. We are called to love, care for, instruct, encourage, support, correct, disciple, etc., one another. In the Old Testament, bad spiritual leaders were named as bad shepherds. In the parable of the Good Shepherd, the, there are thieves who threaten and hired hands who abandon. 
In the responses to the many abuses that are defaming the name of Christ, Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Beringer, wrote a powerful book titled, A Church Called Tove. They name habits of goodness, the circle of Tove, which begins with nurturing empathy, leading to nurturing grace, leading to putting people first, leading to telling the truth, to nurturing justice, to nurturing service, to nurturing Christ-likeness, back to nurturing empathy, grace, people first, truth, justice, service, Christ-likeness, etc. If we are not a body of goodness, how can we possibly bring goodness to others? We are called to nurture a, cult, a church culture marked by Tove. Church of the Redeemer shines forth beautifully in the witness of good hospitality. And hospitality is the distinguishing mark of churches that build relational bridges. Rick Richardson says, the biggest predictive factor for churches being conversion communities, that is, churches who grow new believers, is hospitality. Mazel tov. As a church, we have a track record of hospitality. Our witness of the good news of the Good Shepherd readily builds on and out from that. We are sitting at that wonderful table of goodness. We are sheep of his pasture who are blessed to share our abundance with others. He has shown us what is tove. Jesus said, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving yourselves to be my disciples. Our witness is to the joy of being loved, sought, and found by a wonderful, good shepherd. Elohim Tov, we praise you, good shepherd. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts, provoke our souls, and prime our thinking for the power of another Pentecost where you, O Lord, are lifted up as Good Shepherd before all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen.